the smoking section with Scott Latiri and Sunni Khalid coming down in three, two, one, mark. We are episode three of the smoking section. Light it up, Suni. Yeah. What are we smoking? I'll tell you what we're smoking. We're smoking the Cohibas from Cuba. Mmm. Not to be uh... big day, big day, because we're uh, we're near Christmas. It's a uh, December what the 16th or something. And what better way to mark Christmas than by having the finest cigar produced by mm. an atheist? communist nation Cuba fucking ain't right brother mmm this is good ooh let me take a drop mmm ah Cohiba Dervana now these are Orale. mucho mas muy bueno mmm I could say that because I'm half Mexican I know it's a Cuban thing and it's a Puerto Rican thing when it com- or a Dominican thing when it comes to cigars. But I had a great cigar Nicaragua. in, in Z- Nicaragua. In Nicaragua. I had a great, more than one, I had a bunch of cigars made for me when I was in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. So it's a South American, Latin American thing. So I can... All I'll say is this. Those fucking commies know how to make a great cigar. Why do you got to curse all the time like that? Damn it, I don't know. It just sort of comes naturally. But uh, anyway, um, the story about these cigars, these are the Cohiba Robustos. Uh, I was, uh, Damn it. I drive part-time for Uber, and uh, there was a gentleman, a Japanese-American gynecologist, who I picked up in uh, downtown San Francisco, drove him to his office in Berkeley, and we were talking about cigars the whole way. He forgot his phone in my car. Uh, the next morning I'm driving, I hear this noise coming off, and I check, and I see that it's a phone that someone left. Uh, we connected, and uh, he told me to come by. So I get $15 for returning with someone's phone, but when I showed up there, he had $40 in cash and three Cuban cohibas. He says he doesn't like Dominican, and he doesn't like Nicaraguan, so he doesn't like the blend, but... We can tell these are Cubans even before we lit them up. These are amazing. These are this is like being in cigar heaven right now. Right now it's not raining anymore. We're sitting on the porch of my apartment in Russian Hill district of San Francisco. It's a gorgeous day, a few cumulus clouds, blue skies and cohibas. And communism still reigns in Cuba. That's right. And Trump is uh, reversing all of the goodwill that President Obama evoked. And now, uh, I didn't we, care anything about that. Just in the travel ban on the Cohibas. We can't, so we can't get these, right? You, they're not sold in America. Scott, you and I have always been able to obtain these. Mm. It may be a little bit more difficult for, say, some of our uninitiated brethren to obtain a Cuban Cohiba, but we've always been able to do that. That's because we know how to skirt the criminal justice system, the ins and the outs. We know how to do a little dance. do si do when it comes to uh, dealing with the authorities. Uh, and hence, 
That will be the focus of episode three of the smoking section, the criminal justice system. What do you want to talk about? Well, how we got into it as reporters. Uh, I may have a personal story to talk about later on. But uh, when I got into the business, uh, I was sent, uh, went to uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and worked with the Wilmington News Journal. And the first thing to do for cop reporters is throw them out there on the uh, cop beat. So I had to work cops a couple nights a week and um, really didn't do anything for me. It was just stenography, but I didn't really become, I think, a really good police reporter until I went to the Baltimore Sun. Uh, my wife was uh, pregnant with uh, our, our third child, and I was uh, working cop beat at night. Actually, what I had done, it was uh, April of 1991, and I was sent to do a uh, anti-drugs march on Greenmount Avenue at the St. Anne's uh, Church, uh, which is on 21st to 22nd in Greenmount. Greenmount Avenue in the Barclay Midway section is probably the number one market for heroin in the city of Baltimore. And during this march, I met uh, a, well, she was a reformed heroin addict, uh, reformed crack addict, uh, Robin White. And uh, so I followed her around for a couple of weeks. And then was one, it Robin Wright, Howard Stern's sidekick? No, that's Robin, I forget, but it's not Robin White. Hood? <laughs> An attempted humor. Get used to this, people, or don't get used to it. But anyway, uh, one weekend I was talking to her about her addiction, how she came from New York with her husband and moved about six blocks away from the church, but it was right in the middle of, you know, Heroin Alley. And so one weekend we were supposed to get together and she disappeared for 48 hours. She had relapsed. And uh, I, at this point, I was uh, working every day with the Drug Enforcement Unit of the Eastern District Baltimore City Police Department known as the Zone Rangers because they had cut up the uh, East Edition into nine drug zones and followed the operations there. So when she disappeared, she, you know, I tried to recount every hour, but there was like an eight or nine hour discrepancy on wow. where she was. And uh, basically what she had done when she ran out of money, she was providing sexual favors for uh, various addicts and or dealers. Uh, it was pretty gamey, and that was also during the same time, that spring and summer, that I got, actually observed a 10-year-old drug dealer, Damian Woodland, uh, who was working with uh, Anthony Jones' group. And uh, I saw him arrested, 10-year-old drug dealer. When I came back with the story, My immediate metro editor, whose woman named Ursula, killed the story. Why? Uh, she either didn't, she didn't know anything about drugs. Basically, she being given orders, basically she being given orders to uh, bust my ass uh, from higher up, from the managing editor who I had a uh, conflict with. So anyway, I gave the story. The morning, the uh, the Baltimore Sun shared a newsroom with the Evening Sun. So uh, Ray Sanchez was a friend of mine on Evening Sun. I gave him the story, and there was a photographer there. So they ran the story on the Evening News section. And as soon as the managing editor John Carroll, the late John Carroll, who had just come to the LA Times, 
As soon as he found that out, he had his assistant managing editor come over to me and beg me to find out, to find the kid, and to find his mother. I don't know. To this day, I still don't know how I did it, but I was able to. Uh, I was able to go over to uh, Northwest Baltimore near Pimlico. The mother was staying in a battered woman's shelter. Uh, Damien was the youngest of her three children that she had had by three different men. One of the fathers was incarcerated, one was uh, dead, and the other was just the other was just out. So uh, I don't know how I was able to find her, but I traced her to the to the uh, shelter, and she wouldn't see me. And so I told her, I said, uh, either you talk to me now about your son, or you talk to me after he's dead. Fifteen minutes later, I was sitting down talking with her in the living room of a friend as her son stood by. And she told me that, you know, there was nothing she could do. She had lost control of her 10-year-old son. And, um, you know, she I basically should have gotten up on the table so she could have blown some more smoke directly up my behind. Uh, and I did, you know, 40 inch long piece on this interview with her and my buddy Leon Dash he was with the Baltimore Sun he won a Pulitzer Prize for a Rose for a Rosalie story which was a story about three generations of heroin addicts and he told me that she had lied to me which I had surmised but he said real reporting the kind of investigative reporting he does is several interviews because the first interview people tell you what you think you want to hear and in successive interviews, they reveal more about the truth. And this is what happened. So over the next couple of weeks, I was able to find out essentially that Damien was being paid a dollar a vial. Uh, he was a juvenile. He was 10 years old, which means he would have been not incarcerated. He would have been held at the police station or in baby booking, which is juvenile booking, until... Uh, his parents, our guardian, showed up. So uh, I, went, I remember when Damien was being held in the squad room, he was the coolest customer. Usually when, caught, when kids were getting arrested, they would try to look tough. But as soon as the parents, guardians, they start crying, he was cool as a cucumber. And um, He was 10? He was 10 years old. But, you know, uh, for example, an adult, if they were selling a $10 vial, they would be getting three to four dollars per vial. With Damon, they give him a dollar a vial. And when I saw Damon being arrested over in East Baltimore, it was like he was handing out candy, Smarties. He was making about three to four hundred dollars a day. Wow. He was supporting his mother. And that is how I learned about the criminal justice system. So I followed Damien, I followed I used to go on drug raids, me and my buddy Garland Thompson, who was an op ed writer. For the Baltimore Sun, that whole summer, that was 1991. It's like that Lou Reed song where he talks about uh, kids in the neighborhood on the dirty boulevard. They don't dream about being doctors or, or lawyers. They dream about dealing on the street corner. Is that how it was? This is what he told us. He looked at he looked up at the drug dealers. But Damien was interesting because the head of his drug gang was a guy named Anthony Jones Ayeni, who's now in Supermax in Florence, Colorado, uh, being locked up for 23 hours a day that's maximum security maximum security but he ran what was then the most violent drug gang uh in the history of baltimore drugs they were selling crack 
in East Baltimore, and they not only had an organization which was run by a teenager, which was almost unheard of, but the enforcers who actually carried the guns and watched make sure Damon didn't get popped, they were 14 and 15, and they were using straw purchases, which brought in the FBI and the, the, the ATF alcohol, tobacco, and farms, because what they were doing was that they were using adults with clean criminal records to buy guns for them. They were pointing out the guns and then having someone else pick up the guns for them. I mean, we're talking about uh, Israeli Desert Eagle, which is a 44 caliber weapon, weighs nine pounds unloaded. And this is what they were using to fend off, not the police, yeah. but other drug dealers. Wow. Uh, I may also add that, that that fall, I got the job with National Public Radio. And the next year, I started getting placed, sent to places like Somalia and Mogadishu, uh, and uh, um, Somalia, uh, Angola. But the training that I got that year on the streets of East Baltimore uh, sharpened my reporting schools to the point where I was able to run rings around anybody. The, uh, the TV show The Wire, which was uh, super popular, which I loved, it sounds like that. Is that kind of... Uh yeah, the, if you've seen the Marlo Stansfield character in The Wire, uh, Anthony Jones Ayeni was the real-life version of, uh, of Marlo Stansfield. Truth is, you won't be able to change up any more than me. Close your eyes. It won't hurt nothing. Uh, I knew all of those folks, Prop Joe, uh, Little Melvin, um, Williams, the late little Melvin Williams, who died about two or three years ago. I interviewed these guys all the time. It was very, very interesting to see how drugs revolved, but it was my first brush, uh, really serious brush, comprehensive brush, as a reporter with the criminal justice system. And once you can learn the criminal justice system, was, there was a, an old mentor of mine, Dave Jackson. He was uh, had been a crime reporter with the Chicago Sun-Times during the days of Blackstone Rangers in Chicago. And when he got the time, he was sewn over to Iran. He covered the beginning of the Iranian Revolution. It's 1978-79. So I went into his office and I asked him, what, you know, how about his experience? He said there was his experience as a street reporter in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, that sharpened his tools. I said, why? He said, I was a cop reporter. The Iranian Revolution started as a cop story. And that's when he gave me the advice that Foreign reporting is just local reporting in another country. If you yeah. realize that, everything else is easy. Wow. That's, uh, that's fascinating stuff. I think uh, you didn't really touch on it um, in, a, in, a, in a blatant kind of way. It was more subtle. But uh, the criminal justice system, in my experience as a reporter, 30 years, mostly local news, is uh, it's, it's blatantly racist and sexist. Brown, black people, and women for the most part, get caught up in the tangled web of uh, injustice, really. I mean, it's, you know what we used to look at it like? We used to look at it as retail shopping. Why get the store clerks or the cashiers? You're not going after the mid-level managers. This is how the, the zone rangers were different. They would go after whole organizations because the drugs didn't come from Baltimore. The drugs came through New York through a very sophisticated, they were smuggled in, and they were transported through ships, airplanes, 
the trucking system. That's how they used to come in. And even when I was younger, a little stupider, I used to give people rides, hitchhikers. And I remember picking up a guy at the uh, uh, at the train station in Baltimore. And, you know, where do you need to go? Well, I need to go to 27th and Greenmount. <laughs> and he had a gym bag over his back. He was from New York. I didn't realize I was helping. I was an unwitting accomplice. didn't realize until a couple of years later that I had been an unwitting accomplice to him dropping off 27th and Greenmount. He knew where he had to go. But there was a place in New York around avenues A, B, and C. It was called Alphabet City. If you've ever seen the movie New Jack City, that were basically a whole tenement had been taken over and was being used to manufacture drugs that actually exists. A million dollar a week business reduce the fucking rubbles. Ah! 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 Nino! Huh? It's your responsibility, huh? And that is where a lot of the drugs from Baltimore were packaged in New York and then brought down what they called Cocaine Alley, which was I-95 to Baltimore and Washington. Oh, got a new nickname for you, the unwitting mule, because you, you kind of look like a mule with that new haircut of yours. <laughs> How's the cigar? The cigar is beautiful. I'll tell you what, it's smooth as a baby's butt, almost as smooth as your forehead. Yeah, well. Is it true? Black don't crack? Look at me, I'm 61. <laughs> you don't look at me over 67. <laughs> Anyway, you got you got into it much earlier than I did. Well, as we don't a, want to talk about uh, my... As a seven-year-old, going to, you know, your mother's sending you to go to the library and you're going to court and looking at court cases. I was, yeah, I went to court cases for fun, and I think that uh, that helped me out later on in my career as a journalist. Uh, yeah, I would go to the courthouses and just watch all the different, um, different trials and murder trials and civil trials, and, and for some reason... It was compelling to me, I think maybe because uh, it got me out of my head and it got me out of my, my uh, you know, the, the different challenges that I had as, as a kid growing up in uh, kind of a lower middle class Republican neighborhood um, and uh, you know, being, uh, being the product of a divorced household. I mean, I'm not going to cry the blues because I had a great childhood. I had all sorts of fun adventures with my friends, but as a way for me to kind of just kind of... looked up to Marcel Dion. How could that be a good childhood? Marcel Dion was a great hockey player for the L.A. Kings. He was part of the Triple Crown line. Who was on the Triple Crown line? Marcel Dion, crown, Dave Taylor, and win? Charlie Simmer. How many crowns did they win? It doesn't matter. They were overachievers. They didn't have a whole lot of defense back then, pal. They underachieved. Who was your goaltender? They said Rogie Vashon. <laughs> Who? Are you kidding? Rogie saves, my brother. Rogie didn't save anything for Detroit. <laughs> anyway. Let's talk about when I was in San Francisco a few years back as a reporter, and uh, I kept going to court cases where there were uh, human trafficking uh, cases where, where folks were up for arraignment and uh, prosecution, and it, and it seemed the Bay like... Bay Area is one of the, Bay Area is one of the uh, largest areas of human trafficking in the country. Well, yeah, I, and I decided to do, to do a deep dive on it. I did a five-part series about human trafficking and the loss of innocence and how uh, so many of these young folks are, uh, are shanghaied, really, into this life of prostitution. Young people from all over the, uh, the West Coast and the Northwest and the Southwest, and they're brought to the Bay Area, mostly women, you know, mostly runaways, women of color, you know, Latinas and, uh, and, and African-American girls. And um, I decided to do a deep dive on it 
and really uh, do some investigative reporting. So I followed this one case where this woman, where she was uh, 18 years old, she was kidnapped by this pimp from uh, up north and brought down to the Bay Area and uh, enslaved essentially with another woman um, where they were in a hotel room and then this pimp would have them go out into the streets in Oakland, International Boulevard, and walk the streets. And if she didn't come home with enough money, he'd beat, he'd beat the hell out of her. And he'd beat both of them and he would play them off each other. Every time he hit me, it was just like, I'm nobody. I don't deserve love. I don't deserve to be here. It got to the point where I didn't care if he killed me because he already had in a sense. One day she came home. She hadn't made enough money. No, he, she said, the pimp said to her, you go back out tonight and if you don't bring home another $200, your girlfriend here is gonna be dead. What really struck me in that case was that the woman that I interviewed started crying and saying it was my fault. She was laying on the floor because he had been beating her for every hour that I was gone. He beat her more and more to the point that she was on the floor and she couldn't get up. I think that was my fault because I went to the doctor because I was sick. That's, that's hard to swallow. And that's what they do. They manipulate and they project. Right. And so, to me, this woman's story was so compelling and this guy had a rap sheet as long as both your arms put together and you're what six eight two and a half and uh it seemed to me it was a slam dunk yet this guy was released and uh well he was actually prosecuted and uh given time served which was eight months he should have been attempted murderer human trafficking he should have been in prison for a long time I covered the covered the trial. I was there, and the DA who was prosecuting the case, the assistant DA, I went up to him. I said, "What is the deal here?" And he pulled me aside and he said, "Off the record, said if she was a white girl and she was pretty, it's a slam dunk. But we can't convict because the jury won't convict because they look at her and they figure she's got it coming." I was just down the hall for the formal sentencing of Joshua Allen. He pleaded guilty to human trafficking. Now, the victim in this case said that he kidnapped her, transported her against her will, raped her, beat her continuously, stole her property, including her social security number, and forced her to walk the streets. Yet, less than a year after he was arrested, he's out walking the streets. It sounds like a travesty to me. You know, th this is a very complex case. San Francisco District Attorney George Gascon. I can understand her being upset. In Baltimore, we have a different, uh, we have a different kind of jury nullification because uh, the police force in Baltimore has been revealed to be nothing more than an armed gang. You've had dozens of police officers who have been prosecuted for corruption. You've had two mayors who've essentially had to re been forced to resign because of corruption. And the police in Baltimore have been so discredited that juries will essentially refuse to convict people that they know because they hate the police more. Those uh, people honking right now, I think those are the cops. They got the, uh, the surveillance cameras on us. We gotta go, we gotta take a powder. We gotta go on the down low right now if we're gonna, if we're gonna produce this podcast. Well, I don't know about the down low, okay? That has a different meaning back where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> don't wanna get into that. Yeah, but 
I would be remiss if I were to not talk about uh, my own experience with the criminal justice system. As, as Scott knows, when I came out here uh, to San Francisco six years ago, uh, I had been uh, charged uh, in an assault case involving uh, my older son. And uh, he had attacked me on Halloween of uh, 2013. And uh, my ex-wife worked for the Harford County Sheriff's Department. And uh, they had charged me, even without interviewing me, even though I had offered to be interviewed in the, in the presence of an attorney. They had refused to do that. So they had essentially taken the word of uh, my son... Uh, and they had neglected to talk to two of his friends who were there right before the assault, which would have exonerated me. Uh, it took me 19 months to get cleared. And it was very interesting having covered uh, the criminal justice system as a dispassionate outside observer. And then actually being in the courtroom where I had witnessed and reported on several trials. And the trial took... Uh, three days i was acquitted of all charges by an all-white jury what were the charges uh assault uh aggravated assault i forget what it, there were three charges i've actually forgotten what the charges are but um i had a former a u.s attorney uh and a former uh state police officer who are my counsel and Essentially what they did, I wanted to testify. They said, you don't testify because you don't have to prove your innocence. They have to prove your guilt. And what they showed was there had been not even a cursory uh, investigation taken by the Harford County Sheriff's Department. And essentially uh, they put my son, they cross-examined him for an hour and a half. And he had told three different stories. So they said, which story are you sticking with? So basically they pinned the first story that he had told uh, in family court to get a protective order taken against me. They essentially uh, showed that he had impeached himself on six different occasions. I actually felt sorry for my son. I shouldn't have because, you know, I could have ended up in prison, uh, which I didn't. And uh, But seeing the criminal justice system and knowing what the prosecutor is dealing with, knowing how defense attorneys think it was... Um, it was a trial by fire, but it was really interesting seeing it from the inside as opposed to seeing it from the outside. But justice was served. So what was your experience of being an African-American male inside the criminal justice system? Did you, were you, uh, do you feel that you were victimized at all because of, uh, because of your race? Well, I didn't notice this uh, back in 1987-88 when I first uh, joined the Baltimore Sun. I had to do a story on the Harford County Detention Center. So uh, after the incident, I spent the night at a friend's place. Then I surrendered myself to the authorities, which I shouldn't have done. I should have called a lawyer because they could have got me out. But I spent five days in the Harford County Detention Center. And the only time I had been to the detention center before that was when I did the story on the opening of said detention center. I noticed when I got into the detention center, um, Harford County's African-American population is only 11%. 80% of the inmates were African-American. That was the thing that I noticed. And I was in a cell block originally of about two dozen men and it was equally uh, split up between members of the Aryan nation <laughs> yeah. 
and uh, the black gorilla family. There was one other Muslim. He and I were basically alone, but uh, we were not in the same cell. But I was taken out of, I was put in isolation essentially uh, for five days, which I'm very uh, happy. Was that protective? It was protective. And I have theories on why I was put in to protective. You think it had anything to do with your work? Yeah, I knew a lot of the, I, I knew the prosecutor, I knew, I didn't know the prosecutor, I knew people in the prosecutor's office. I knew some of the judges. In fact, when I was brought, first brought back to trial, two of the judges accused themselves. And I remember going into the courtroom with my attorney and said, you know, this guy, this judge is a very tough judge. We don't want him. I said, whatever. I knew this guy. I had actually known him as a private attorney. And when he became elevated to a judgeship, I wrote that story. So he looked at me. Then he calls the prosecutors and my defense attorneys into his chambers for like 35, 40 minutes. And after that, my attorney comes out with this puzzled look on her face. I said, well, what happened? See, he recused himself. So he brought me in. And he did a 30-minute testimonial about what a great reporter you were. I just followed your work since then. So he recused himself. They sent it to another judge who had been a former prosecutor that I had covered. She recused herself. Within the same day, I get recused by two of the five sitting judges in Harford County, uh, Harford County uh, Circuit Court. And uh, my attorney told me this is a good thing. I said, why? I said, because, you know, the judges talk amongst each other yeah. and they can see and um, I don't think I should have gone to trial at all understand the reasons why but uh, was there a preliminary hearing yeah there was a there was a preliminary hearing and the uh, and the prosecution had to present some evidence for it to go to trial the evidence they produced was essentially one of the versions of testimony of the three that my son had given them they conveniently um, so it was it was the judge that finally um, took the case. The other two judges, or the one judge who recused, two two judges, two judges recused themselves. So it was the new judge. Yeah, that I did not that I did not know. And she was she was she was pretty good. We insisted on a jury trial. We got twelve white jurors, no African Americans. But you know the fact that Harford County is. Conservative county where I lived in it for 25 years, but my attorney told me the fact that you're an African American Muslim charged with assault that you were acquitted in two and a half hours by an all-white jury basically was a slam dunk. I wanted to testify to actually tell what had happened, but my attorney says you don't have to, which I thought was sort of unfair. But you know, I was exonerated. Yeah, you know, it's it's really kind of been my. Uh my experience with with police, both in Oakland and San Francisco, for the most part, of course, in L.A., where I grew up, um, it was my experience as an outsider. And I did have a brush for the law when I was a teenager that uh, there is this this old boy mentality still that's ingrained within uh, the police structure in this country. It's been my experience. You know, I haven't really been directly involved with other police uh, agencies, departments uh, outside of California. But I know what I read and I know what I see. And uh, it's just, it, it's systemic and it is rooted in the fact, 
and I've covered, I've been to uh, police academies and actually watched the training and actually gone through, for, I, I, I did a little, um, you know, reporting on what you have to go through to become a cop. And uh, it's, it's a culture of fear. Police on the street are afraid. Yes, they are. And they're not really trained to de-escalate and uh, there's the psychological training. They're, they have a good reason to be afraid, and many times they have a very good reason to be afraid because they're outgunned by the regular drug dealers, have much more powerful weapons and body armor than local police do. Right. But it's been my experience more times than not, Mario Woods, Oscar Grant, where it escalates and then First a person of color ends up dead. In black communities throughout America, and right here in the Bay Area, the Bayview, Hunters Point, East Oakland, the Western Edition, there's a sense of occupation of communities under siege. My uncle and my grandpa was killed by the police. I just want to make it to 18. These police killings are serving as modern-day lynching. First alternative, and when I surrendered myself, I made sure that the police could see my hands and I was coming. I didn't want to, I did not want to become a statistic. I was with the Zone Rangers for a year and I saw how real professional police do their job. So I wasn't worried about them, but this was Harford County. And um, I could tell that if I made any mistakes, that I would have had to pay for that with my life. So I talked with them, let them know, let them see everything. And uh, I was cooperative i had to you know i had given this speech to my sons and my daughters about how to act toward police it's the talk you know that you know my uncles had with me you know on his drive you don't want to get smart with the police because you know they will hurt you especially but i noticed in like in my case uh, my ex-wife had complained about she was a an immigrant from Kenya, and she complained about the racism within her office. She had been looked over for promotion. She had been falsely accused of, of, of things in the office. And she had been basically ostracized. But when I was being arrested, the police officer were like saying, we got him. You know, we look out after our own. Now, she had been excluded from being own or our own for all the time she had worked at the sheriff's department. But in this case, it was like they were together. When it was about putting my black ass behind bars, they, they closed ranks. And uh, as an aside, I think that the true justice is the fact that my uh, ex-wife continues to work for the Hartford County Sheriff's Department. She gets to look at the same officers who basically screwed up on doing the investigation that essentially paved the way for my exoneration. But still, once you're in the criminal justice system, once you have a record, once it's out there, it's public knowledge, it can hurt you. And it hurt a lot of folks during, hurt me. during the war on drugs. I think it hurt me in this case because I wasn't able to find a job. I mean, it yeah. took me essentially going to KGO and meeting with Deborah Monroe. And she went on the Internet and she saw it, and I explained to her what happened. She hired me anyway. I will be forever indebted to Deborah Monroe for essentially hiring me uh, for my credentials as a reporter instead of essentially coming to a conclusion and convicting me. Because I told you I had applied for a couple of jobs before that, and they we ended up talking about my case where I was had been 
being prosecuted, but there had been no disposition on my case at all. Well, you know, we could talk uh, till our eyes are uh, popping out of our heads about the injustices of the criminal justice Actually, system. This Cohiba is popping my eyes. But again, yeah, the, the, this Cohiba is unbelievable. It's a real treat. It's a Christmas treat. It's a uh, holiday treat. Uh, I want to thank my friend Suni Khalid for, for bringing me one. Thank you so much. And thank you, Mr. Japanese gentleman. Do you know, do you remember his name? <laughs> don't even remember his name, do you? Uh, I, his name is Jim. I don't know what his, his, his last name is. He's Japanese-American. Well, thank you very much, Jim. Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in. I think that's it for this uh, segment of uh, the smoking section. Until next time, give me your lockout. This is Suni Khalid reporting in San Francisco. Scott Letiri reporting in San Francisco. Hasta mañana. Adios. Vaya con Dios. Spark it up, baby. What's, uh, what is it, uh, Spanish for uh, Merry Christmas? Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Yeah, Trini Lopez, eat your heart out. No, no, that's Jose Feliciano. One of us. One of them. We all look alike to you, don't we? Don't believe that, just leave that there. This room costs $2,000 a month. You can believe it, man, it's true. Somewhere a landlord's laughing till he wets his pants. No one dreams of being a doctor or a lawyer or anything. They dream of dealing on the dirty boulevard. Give me your hungry, your tired, your poor, I'll piss on them. That's what the statue of bigotry says. Your poor huddled masses, let's club them to death. Get it over with and just dump them on the boulevard. Get them out on the dirty boulevard. Going out to the dirty boulevard. They're going down on the dirty boulevard.